So last class, we framed the parameters of what a course like this can ideally do, right? We talked about how a creative writing class um, can't teach a person how to write. It can't be just about communicating rules or communicating tricks. But it can accomplish three main things. And I want to recap this real quick because it sets us up well for the substance of the talk today. A creative writing class can reorient us to the primary focus for any creative writer, which is reading well, right? That's the primary focus. Writing comes from other writing, uh, especially writing at a highly imaginative, um, discipline, creative level. A creative writing class can present key principles and showcase the infinite creative possibilities that other writers demonstrate in their application of those principles. So reading well, principles, possibilities. And thirdly, a creative writing class can encourage experimentation. Hopefully, all classes do this. Uh, experimentation, play, imaginative stretching, encouraging the writer's concern in uh, pushing themselves, maybe outside of their comfort zones as writers, into new areas, uh, expanding on their awareness of that infinite possibility that that they've seen in other writers. Okay. And then on Tuesday in our discussion of Artful Chapter 3, we explored ideas about edges and about the edges of these things. Uh, control, coming right up to the edge of control and maybe over. Um, the edge of oneself, the idea of leaving oneself behind, right? Um, there was that quote from Artful, page 111, in which the narrator described a place that could only be reached when you were brave enough to come into yourself so wholly that you left yourself behind. So the edge of oneself. And then the edge of the known, or the edge of the unknown. And uh, there's that Hitchcock reference in Artful that got us thinking about that. Um, and then we also talked about the, the etymology of the word narrative and how that relates to the idea of knowing um, and the different sort of implications of that, the fact that narrative comes from to know. So who knows in narrative and who knows at what point? How much does the writer know and how much does the reader know? And then we also explored these sort of the idea of these edge states that are really creatively um, productive the edge state of surrender, which corresponds to that idea of the loss of control. The edge state of questions, kind of sitting with the questions, living in the questions, and the edge state of patience. So all of this is a really good starting point for today, and the focus of today, which is seeing to the edge. Um, specifically, though, seeing as a creative, imaginative discipline. Um, how any writer's Reading practices are part of that, too. So seeing and reading as being intertwined in a really rich, uh, fruitful way. How any writer's reading practices, reading well, which is one of the aims of any good creative writing course, any writer's reading well will be intimately related to that writer's development of the discipline of seeing, seeing well. Reading well and seeing well, these things go together. And these things together, reading well and seeing well, ultimately have to do with how we find our way to those creative edge states that Ali Smith is talking about, that eminently creative 
zone of the edge. We get there through this uh, alchemy of reading well and seeing well. So that's our focus. And I want to start with an anecdote about a poet, um, the poet Rilke. Rainer Maria Rilke. Are any of us familiar with Rilke's work? Great 20th century poet, um, maybe best known not for his poetry, at least in this country, not for his poetry, but for a book called Letters to a Young Poet that a lot of uh, developing writers read, writers of all kinds. I, I keep that book with me. So Rilke, in the fall of 1907, Rilke was in Paris, uh, where there was a major exhibition of paintings by Paul Cezanne. Cezanne had died the previous year. Uh, hope you can see those okay. So there was this major exhibition right there in Paris, and Rilke visited this exhibition basically every day. He went once and realized he needed to go back on a daily basis for basically the entire span of the exhibition, which uh, lasted for the entire autumn. So over a stretch of weeks, he would go in and he would stand and stare at Cezanne's paintings uh, every day. And he felt he was learning from Cezanne. The poet was learning from the painter. And what he was learning was about seeing, about color, and about artistic discipline and creative expression. And so Rilke, during this time, wrote a series of letters, almost daily, home to his wife. And I want to show you what he says in part of one letter. This is to his wife, Clara, 1907. He writes, I can tell how much I've changed by the way Cezanne challenges me now. I am on my way to becoming a worker, on a long road, perhaps. But still, I can already understand the old man. Cezanne died in old age. Today, I went to see his pictures again. It's remarkable what a surrounding they create. One feels their presence drawing together into a colossal reality, as if these colors could heal one of indecision once and for all. The good conscience of these reds, these blues, their simple truthfulness, it educates you. And if you stand among them as ready as possible, you get the impression that they are doing something for you. So one thing the Cezanne paintings were doing for Rilke was changing the way he looked at the world around him every day when he left the gallery and walked through Paris back to his lodgings. Um, suddenly he was newly tuned into the play of light and shadow and different colors that he sees all around him in the city. Particularly Cezanne's attention to, you see it in these works, and in a lot of his other paintings, Cezanne's attention to the color blue, and not just blue like in a definitive way, but a whole spectrum of blue, like the infinite blues within blue. So we see some blues there, right? In each of those different kinds of blues within that spectrum. Rilke was tuning into this. Among other things, this was a major thing that captured his focus. And he begins filling the language of his letters with all kinds of blues. Um, trying to fit the blues into different phrasings. Differentiated blues, degrees of blue, different expressive types of blue. He's trying to channel his seeing into the right language. That's the work that he finds himself about that month, or that series of weeks. Um, so 
Uh, here are some of the phrases from his letters, just a few of them. He's writing about a completely supportless blue, a blue dove gray. And these aren't always just Cezanne's blues. They're the blues that Cezanne is helping Rilke see in the world around him. Thunderstorm blue, ancient Egyptian shadow blue, densely quilted blue, waxy blue, self-contained blue, listening blue, an ocean of cold, barely blue, bourgeois cotton blue. Um, something is happening, right? These paintings are doing something for him. So here we have a poet who's learning the creative discipline of seeing a particular color in particular ways. Uh, and it's a profound lesson in seeing. And Rilke is pushing to the edge right, of his perceptive powers and to the edges of language in trying to capture these colors. This is actually something, uh, it's work that he had begun to do a few years previously while studying with another visual artist. And I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. So today, alongside exploring what it means to see as a writer, I want to continue thinking about also about reading and the writer. And we'll discover how these things converge and entwine reading and seeing. So the idea of reading well, as Verlin Klinkenborg said in that reading from our first class, you can only become a better writer by becoming a better reader. As writers, we are readers first, as we just said, Reading is our primary work. And expanding on this now, as writers, what we are reading, what we are readers of, is text, yes, obviously, but also world, right? We're also reading the world. We're learning to better read the world around us all the time, which is a matter of seeing. So great writing wants to comprehend and re-express the world and in new forms. So the qualities of a good reader are interconnected with the qualities of a good seer. For a writer, reading is really a matter of seeing. It's how attentively we see the text and everything that's in it. And uh, our seeing is also about how attentively we read the world around us. So for a writer, this is a compositional undertaking. I think that's a good way to think about it. Seeing is a compositional undertaking. This striving to be a better reader and seer uh, is a matter of reading and seeing compositionally. So that means the writer hears and sees every text in all its fullness. And it also means, ideally, that the writer hears and sees the fullness of anything that they encounter in their daily life. So in Rilke's case there, for those several weeks, it was just blue, like encountering that as fully as he could, seeing it, and then trying to recreate it, re-express it, in language. So again, the, good, the qualities of a good reader are interconnected with the qualities of a good seer. And a major essential quality of a good reader and good seer is the quality of self-forgetting. And this relates to some of the things we touched on last time that we're going to build on now. Reading well and seeing well share this this state of self-forgetting or this kind of move towards self-forgetting. The discipline of creatively, imaginatively reading the world takes the writer out of themselves, ideally, to some degree. Beyond, it takes the writer beyond their own edges, reading and seeing the world. Okay, so reading well, seeing well, 
self-forgetting. Uh, we looked last class at this statement from the 20th century philosopher Michael Oakeshott. Education is an endless, unrehearsed intellectual adventure in which, in imagination, we enter into a variety of modes of understanding the world and ourselves and are not disconcerted by the differences or dismayed by the inconclusiveness of it all. Education is not acquiring a stock of ready-made ideas, images, sentiments, beliefs, and so forth. It is learning to look, to listen, to think, to feel, to imagine, to believe, to understand, to choose, and to wish. And we talked last time about how Oakeshott's key words here for, for a creative writer especially um, are those learning to look, listen, imagine. It's his definition of an educational experience. And learning to do each of these things is what liberal education is about, an education that frees the educated person to a rich experience of the world and of their life. I want to point out how consistent these things are with the writer's reading and seeing work, going beyond one's edges, right? Learning to look, to listen, to imagine. These are all about reading well. They're all about seeing well. And ultimately, they're all, to some degree, about self-forgetting, about going to that edge of the self, so about surrender. And we can connect these explicitly. Um, so what it means to read well. That's where I want to move now. What does it mean to read well? Um, we're going to look at some statements from four key thinkers on that subject, four key thinkers and writers, three of whom are creative writers, who've written about what it means to read well. So what does it mean to read well? Here's one person's perspective. Harold Bloom, his book, How to Read and Why, he says, we read frequently, if unknowingly, in search of a mind more original than our own. Does that ring a bell for you? Does that seem consistent with your experience as a reader? I think it's a great articulation of something that a lot of us do as readers, but maybe don't always um, put to ourselves in that way. So he's proposing that reading is ultimately about going beyond oneself to access greater originality, right? Um, found in another writer to access a mind that is in some way beyond ours or beyond our imagination. We talked about this last time too, reading beyond our means, the importance of that, right? So here's another idea related to this. What does it mean to read well? One of our greatest uh, modern fiction writers, Virginia Woolf, a true original in her own right, um, was also one of our most gifted and uh, insightful literary critics, and she wrote a wonderful little essay in 1931 about reading well. It was called, How Should One Read a Book? And in that essay, she says that in order to read well, first, do not dictate to your author. Try to become him. Be his fellow worker and accomplice. If you hang back and reserve and criticize at first, you are preventing yourself from getting the fullest possible value from what you read. But if you open your mind as widely as possible, then signs and hints of almost imperceptible fineness from the twist and turn of the first sentences will bring you into the presence of a human being unlike any other. So do not dictate to your author. There's a spirit of self-surrender here, right? It's consistent with this idea of self-forgetting. 
becoming the author, like surrendering your own identity almost to the point where you embody the author for the span of the book, is what she's suggesting. That spirit of openness, open your mind as widely as possible. Okay, so Bloom, Wolf, here's a third perspective on what does it mean to read well from sort of an unlikely source, C.S. Lewis. Uh, we all know C.S. Lewis, right? Best known for the Narnia books. He was also an accomplished literary critic as a professor at Oxford um, and has a wonderful little book about reading and it's called An Experiment in Criticism, which is the worst possible title. <laughs> it gets, I think it gets the prize for the most boring title for a really engaging book, <laughs> Experiment in Criticism. Um, but here's something he says in this. What does it mean to read well? He says, we must use our eyes. We must look and go on looking till we have certainly seen exactly what is there. The first demand any work of art makes upon us is, one of our keywords, surrender. Look, listen, receive, get yourself out of the way. There is no good asking first whether the work before you deserves such a surrender. For until you have surrendered, you cannot possibly find out. So here he's stating explicitly that reading is a matter of seeing, and he uses one of those edge words there, surrender, right? Um, saying explicitly, get yourself out of the way, which is his way of encouraging the reader to forget themselves in order to read well. He uses the word surrender three times here. <laughs> it's pretty emphatic. And um, to my ears, I don't know about you, but to my ears as a contemporary reader, by Lewis putting it in these exact terms, it becomes a little uncomfortable for me, <laughs> that word, especially so emphatically put. Surrender can sound like kind of a power dynamics verb, right? And so we, the next question is like, who's on what side of that, in that power dynamic? But I want to just stay with this, um, acknowledging that as a disclaimer. I want to stay with this line of thought for a minute because we're going to take it and move forward towards something more or this essential correlation with a creative way of seeing. And I think we can build on this idea. Okay, so our fourth writer on the subject of what does it mean to read well is uh, Nabokov, Vladimir Nabokov, um, known as a novelist, notorious for the book Lolita. In the mid-20th century, he gave a series of lectures in literature that he later collected in a book. And at the front of the book is this little introductory essay called Good Writers and Good Readers. And uh, in this essay, he presents this little mock quiz <laughs> that he would present to his students in those lectures. Um, and it's a mock quiz about what makes a good reader. So I just want to show you this. It's tongue in cheek, so but here's what he says. Select four answers to the question, what should a reader be to be a good reader? And here are the options. The reader should belong to a book club. The reader should identify themselves with the hero or heroine. The reader should concentrate on the socioeconomic angle. The reader should prefer, prefer a story with action and dialogue to one with none. The reader should have seen the book in, the, in a movie. <laughs> the reader should be a budding author. The reader should have imagination. The reader should have memory. The reader should have a dictionary, 
the reader should have some artistic sense. So which four are probably the most important in making a good reader? Probably the last four. Yeah, that's right. It's kind of a rigged quiz, right? He would point out that these are the four and then talk about why they're important. So he goes on to do that. And um, in this elaboration, he coins a really interesting phrase, which is mainly why I wanted to bring him into this discussion. So here's what he says in elaborating. He says, there are at least two varieties of imagination in the reader's case. First, there's the comparatively lowly kind, which turns for support to the simple emotions and is of a definitely personal nature. A situation in a book is intensely felt because it reminds us of something that happens to us or to someone we know or knew. Or, again, a reader treasures a book mainly because it evokes a country, a landscape, a mode of living, which he nostalgically recalls as part of his own past. Or, and this is the worst thing a reader can do, he identifies himself with a character in the book. This lowly variety is not the kind of imagination I would like readers to use. So this is a guy who knows what his opinions are. <laughs> but here's what he goes on to say. So what is the authentic instrument to be used by the reader? It is, this is the key phrase for us, impersonal imagination and artistic delight. What should be established, I think, is an artistic, harmonious balance between the reader's mind and the author's mind. We ought to remain a little aloof and take pleasure in this aloofness, while at the same time we keenly enjoy, passionately enjoy, enjoy with tears and shivers the inner weave of a given masterpiece. The reader must know when and where to curb his imagination, and this he does by trying to get clear the specific world the author places at his disposal. We must see things and hear things. We must visualize the rooms, the clothes, the manners of an author's people. So um, thinking about these ideas of the edge states and how they contribute to reading well and how reading well connects with seeing well and self-forgetting, I think this is a helpful phrase, impersonal imagination. We see how that relates, right, to the idea of surrender, going beyond the self as a reader, but ultimately we're going to move toward how that also relates to good seeing. Okay, so here's a visual artist, a wonderful um, contemporary visual artist. Do we know Linda Berry's work? Fabulous, right? She's now a professor, an interdisciplinary professor of creativity. And her, her last several books have been these beautiful works of collage that are also um, bringing in pieces from her teaching. And so there are these gorgeous visual meditations on the creative process. And here's just one little corner of one collage. Seeing what is there, gazing. Part of our work together is to be able to watch an image in a sustained way as if it were alive and capable of change. Part of our work is to take time, to wait like any bird watcher, to hold still and be taken in. So we see the connection here to self-forgetting, right? to be taken in. So I think what we're talking about in all of this, reading, seeing, self-forgetting, is a kind of imagination training. By standing out on those edges, those creative zones that are on the edge, and learning to see, learning to see in kind of a surrendering, self-forgetting way, 
what we're ultimately doing is just learning to imagine better, right? Learning to imagine more richly. It's about an openness to that edge state. It's about um, embracing the questions, the not knowing, or the not yet knowing. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Here's James Baldwin again with a different quote. He says, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions that have been hidden by the answers. Uh, I think he's talking about this idea, this imagination training, laying bare those questions. The purpose of art, he says, I think we could say too that this is the purpose of art making, to bring the questions out into the light. And this is the purpose of the seeing that art making requires. The seeing that is the basis of the kind of art making we're talking about. Finding the questions, seeing past the edge of what we know to what we don't yet know. So on this idea of imagination training, I also want to share this notion from Virginia Woolf. There must be two levels of being, the surface and the spreading depths. To tell the whole story of a life, a writer must devise a means by which two levels, the two levels of existence could be recorded. This phrase, the surface and the spreading depths, I think that's what Rilke was tuning into every day when he went back to, to, look, to stand with those Cezanne paintings. She's talking about the matter of seeing well, right? Only seeing well can clue us into the, those dual realities, not only what's on the surface, and seeing the surface purely and entirely, maybe for the first time, but also cluing into what's, on the, uh, what's below that surface in the deeps. So I bring Virginia Woolf in again because she's one of our exemplars. I want to talk about her process a little bit now as um, an artist who was very much about perfecting her powers of seeing. And she was conscious, too, in her understanding of how these things are so intertwined, reading well, seeing well, self-forgetting. And I think her work, the power of her work exemplifies that whole process. Um, so how many have read Mrs. Dalloway? No? I wish we could read it in the course. Um, this book is, it's kind of a miracle that it even exists. <laughs> it was published almost 100 years ago in 1925, self-published, uh, and has never been out of print since. In a way, it had to be self-published because it was so idiosyncratic, so unusual, and so remarkable for all those reasons. Um, so I want to kind of...